everyone. My name's Yvonne Hartley, and I'm co-administrator, along with Sarah Hanover, of the Jeremy Bamba Innocence Campaign. I'm also the Forensic Liaison Manager, which means I find and work with forensic scientists on the case material and the evidence we've uncovered. I also work with the legal team on the submissions and in supporting them with the evidence. In this special episode today, we will tell you how we got the material from which we extracted the evidence of Jeremy's innocence. And this is the material which has been put in front of the CCRC. We will also discuss why it's taken so long to get to this point, a question we are commonly asked. We'll also tell you who the CCRC are and what their role is getting Jeremy's case back to the Court of Appeal. And also we will outline just some of the factors of the new evidence that we have sent for consideration. I'm joined today by my colleague, Philip Walker, and Philip, it's over to you. I am Philip Walker, and my role covers external communications for the campaign. This comprises such activities as lobbying the all-party parliamentary group on miscarriages of justice regarding the issue of disclosure of criminal cases, a key failing in the current system that has hindered Jeremy's defence since the day he was charged. I'm also a director of JB Campaign Limited, which is the fundraising arm of the campaign. So as you know, Philip, that we got the material that we rely on to extract the evidence from, from in 2011. And this was provided to Michael Turner QC after the finish of the 2002 appeal. But because of public interest immunity restrictions that were in place at that time, he wasn't permitted to give Jeremy or the campaign team this material. And as a result, it was only in 2011 that he was allowed to disclose it. Following that disclosure in 2011, over the next 10 weeks, the material was then scanned into a case database. Following this, copies of the documents were then sent to Jeremy to look at. So Jeremy would spend virtually every night then going through the material and giving it a unique reference number, which has been incredible. When we reference a document, each one has got its own unique reference number. So that's made a lot of what we've done with the submissions possible. Otherwise, it would have been extremely difficult. To, to reference this much material. We've got over 275,000 pieces of paper, which were disclosed to us. And we've had even more since from people who have former documentary makers who had research material, and they very kindly provided it to us as well. And some of that has enabled us to and even more little jigsaw pieces, which we've been able to match into the case. So all in all, it's been a mammoth task, not only in getting the material, but in um, scanning it, referencing it, and putting it into a database so that it's easily accessible for us and for Jeremy to be able to use. Now, Jeremy doesn't have access to a laptop at this time. He hasn't done for uh, many years now. But because of the referencing system, 
and because of the number of documents he has in his cell, that we are able, when we reference a document, Jeremy can easily lay his hands upon it so that he can do his part of the work or check anything that we have said regarding quotes and extracts. So it all works. It works really well. We've got a really good system. And we do share that with people at, when we go on conferences. Um, a lot of people have no idea. We didn't have any idea what to do at first. It's a learning curve. So we share our learning curve with others who are experiencing their own miscarriage of justice or fighting for their friends and loved ones so that they're able to start going through their case material in the hope that their wrongful convictions can be rectified. Yeah, I don't think we can overestimate how much uh, this new material strengthened our case. And the, these new submissions that are going to the CCRC now really wouldn't have had the, the huge amount of substance they do without that batch of disclosure. Absolutely not. I mean, the PII restrictions that were in place prevented us having access to anything involving a police investigation uh, or inquiry. So that meant that police statements, forensic documents that were brought up by the City of London Police, the Dickinson Inquiry in 1986, the City of London Police Inquiry in 1991, and the Stoke and Church Inquiry on the lead-up to the 2002 appeal, we weren't allowed that material because it was subject to PII. But when that rule was lifted, that meant that anything that was generated on a police investigation as a whole could no longer be held under PII restrictions. So therefore, that meant all the draft copies of witness statements that had been written, we were then able to see. All the reports from, um, from Dickinson, in which we've obtained a lot of evidence from Dickinson, we've obtained a lot of evidence from the Stoke and Church Inquiry. And it's evidence which they could have held their hands up at the time and said, actually, we found this and we need to make the defence aware of this and we need to tell the judges this, but they stay quiet. So one good example of that is the 999 call. Um, the, city, the Stoke and Church investigation, who was the Metropolitan Police, uncovered that evidence themselves in 2002. But once they'd done their investigation on it, they didn't even tell the defence. And they didn't tell the defence once they handed the material over. It was only years later when we've been able to analyse that that we've actually found their high-priority action that set out that they were investigating this issue. And I think that's absolutely appalling. You've got a live court of appeal process ongoing and the investigating police for stay quiet. And whether they were instructed to, it may have been they just didn't realise the significance of it. So, you well, know, it's it only the... Sorry. Huh? I was going to say, I think this highlights one of the ways that Essex police have been able to manipulate the case. Uh, because originally PII, which, as you said, stands for public interest immunity, uh, was brought about for a very specific purpose. And that really was to protect two things. Firstly, the, the identity of um, police informants and undercover police officers uh, and national security. And those were the two things that I think most people would agree 
there are some circumstances where information can be kept secret to protect those two things. But police misused it by putting a blanket prohibition on material they didn't want to see the light of day by just saying, we're putting a PAI notice on this. Um, and for instance, um, Julie Mugford's mother made a statement, um, which we suspect was probably quite uh, complimentary about Jeremy. Um, and they slapped the PII order on that. Now, what possible grounds in terms of protecting police informants or national security can there be for putting such a statement under PII? So that, that's been a big, big hurdle for the defence. Um, unfortunately, because PII was amended and pretty much overturned, uh, we've got over that hurdle now. But if that hadn't have happened, we, we'd have had real problems getting the material. Absolutely. And like I said, it's within this material that Essex Police had no idea at the time that we would ever get to see it. And it is so revealing on so many counts. Um, there's contradictory statements from firearms officers. There's, yeah, there's a heck of a lot of material we still haven't had disclosed, which Essex Police are fully aware of. In fact, they've admitted they have material, but they said it's not relevant. How on earth they can judge that it's not relevant? I have absolutely no idea. It's probably not relevant to them maintaining the conviction and so that's why they haven't released it so far. Um, but I'm sure we can talk about that again a bit further on in this discussion. So, as we all know now, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, do, do you want to say a few words about the CCRC and who they are and what they do? Before the CCRC came into existence, the only way to get through the court appeal process to be reassessed was by means of a direct appeal by the convicted to the Home Secretary, and this was made through the C3 Department of the Home Office. The CCRC was afforded rights when it was introduced to refer a case back to the Court of Appeal if there was, in its opinion, a real possibility that a conviction would be quashed or a sentence reduced. As well as reviewing possible miscarriage of justice cases, the Commission are also responsible for a number of other issues. They can be requested by the Court of Appeal to investigate an issue involve, involving an ongoing appeal, like they did with the Stoke and Church Inquiry in 2002, as this may help the Court to reach a conclusion, in particular in an area, they can be asked for advice by the Secretary of State for Justice. When they, and they can advise the Queen to issue a royal pardon. The CCRC have what they call a threshold, that the applicant must have new evidence or a new legal argument that wasn't identified at the time of the trial that might have changed the outcome of the trial if the jury had had the chance to reconsider it. The Commission have the power to request documents from the prosecution and from the police to assist them in their analysis. If along the way they discover even more new evidence that, we, that has not been mentioned in the submissions, they have a duty of care to the convicted person to investigate these as well. The Commission have special powers under Section 17 
of the Criminal Appeal Act of 1995 to obtain information and documents from public bodies, including the police, the Crown Prosecution Service and social services. A new amendment was made in 2016, where a bill was passed in Parliament, which now allows the CCRC to obtain material from private individuals and organisations as well. So they now have powers which are listed as Section 18, Disclosure Requests, um, and we've made numerous Section 18 disclosure requests, as, many, as well as a substantial number of Section 17 disclosure requests, which we're hoping that the CCRC will assist with, as it contains crucial evidence that Essex Police will not disclose. Everyone asks us, what's taking so long? What's going on? Why is nothing happening? It's a question we've got asked a very lot over the last five or six years. But we did have an ongoing application with the Crown Prosecution Service at the time. Yeah, well, I think there have been several elements to this. Firstly, was the time involved in uh, going through the mass of material involved in the 2011 disclosure. Uh, As you say, it was nearly 300,000 sheets of paper, uh, which for a small team takes an inordinate amount of time to go through and realise the significance of anything that uh, would be helpful to our cause uh, within that. So having, having done all that analysis, you then have to decide what route you're going to take to make the most of it. Uh, and as, as you said, Yvonne, it, there have been several ways that that's been approached. Uh, firstly, by going to the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, and asking for disclosure through them, particularly around matters about the two silences. Uh, and that, after that uh, approach, that led to a judicial review of the refusal by the CPS to disclose the material we were after. Uh, and at that judicial review, the judge, Justice Knowles, uh, recommended that the case, including the matter of the two potential two moderators, should go back to the CCRC. So it's been a long and winding road through these various avenues, um, but all of those roads have lead, led back to the CCRC, um, and they are the, the gatekeepers to the Court of Appeal. Uh, but one thing we should make clear is that even if the CCRC do refer the case, which is what we hope and expect them to do, the final decision does rest with the Court of Appeal. Uh, and in fact, in 2002, the CCRC referred the case back to the Court of Appeal, uh, and the court subsequently turned down the appeal. Uh, so a CCRC reference is not the end of the matter. Uh, it is then uh, a further step of convincing the Court of Appeal that uh, your grounds justify overturning the conviction. So it, it, it's a very lengthy and time-consuming uh, process. Uh, and the wheels of justice, unfortunately, grind very slowly. Uh, but we are now where we need to be with the CCRC. Uh, and we think our case is very strong. Uh, and we hope and expect them to do, uh, do, do the right thing. I'll just explain a little bit further about why we did approach the Crown Prosecution Service first. As we've already said, the Criminal Cases Review Commission are the only body who can refer a case to the Court of Appeal. So what would be the point of going to the Crown Prosecution Service? 
So we did this for a number of reasons. And first thing, as Philip said, was because they have immediate access to the home's data computer system in which all the files from a case are stored. And we provided them with the home's reference numbers to the documentation that our scientists needed in order to complete their work. With that as well, the Crown Prosecution Service do have the power to instruct the Criminal Case Review Commission to refer a case. So it was a double-edged sword. We were trying to get the disclosure and also with the evidence we were presenting, it was the hope that they would refer the case to the CCRC for a speedy referral. So how we came to go to the Crown Prosecution Service was that in 2016, Jeremy was in conversation with his then QC, Michael Turner, who told him that in chambers during the 2002 appeal, that he was told two silences featured in the case. Now, Jeremy had always said that two silences must have been in the house because he knew his cousin's silence was always kept in the house and his dad's silence was kept in the house. But it was always, always rejected. So we, this disclosure of Mr Turner, we then looked at the case papers in a new way with the mindset that actually there are two silences. So let's look at it from that angle. So we're not trying to try and make things fit into the being one. We're trying to support the fact that they were two, which once we did that was extremely easy to find the evidence that supported that. So what we did, we went to the CC, the, the Crown Prosecution Service with the evidence we put together in a very brief format, along with the forensic report that supported us, and also with a request for disclosure of 27 documents. After months of waiting, the Crown Prosecution Service responded, and after a little bit of to in and froing because their representative changed during the course of the action, um, they eventually said to us, provide us with two proof of two silences and we'll consider it. So we spent about six months putting that information together in a comprehensive manner and then submitted it to them. Only when they got it, they weren't interested in looking at that and the Crown Prosecution Service merely said all they commented on was that um, we weren't having the disclosure and basically ignored everything that we'd said what we'd asked for. So on the refusal, they said that they wouldn't consider it any further. And so we decided to take it to judicial review. Now, judicial review you can get on legal aid, um, but legal aid, you have a lot of restrictions with legal aid, so we decided that um, we would try and fund the judicial review. Um, this was funded by um, somebody who made a very kind donation uh, to allow this to happen. So we went to the, made the JR application and 18 hours before we were ready with the court date sat there with our evidence ready to go, the CPS changed their line of answering the question. They gave us diff a different version of their events. But in doing so, they also disclosed information that we would never have known. So it was a, 
that was pertaining to some forensic examinations that we had never previously known about. So over the course of a few months, um, we eventually got to the court, which was then held on, uh, it was a virtual court, it was held on video link, and um, discussions took place. It lasted about an hour, I think. And as I say, a few week or two later, Justice Knowles came back with a decision that he couldn't support us on the disclosure, even though we have court orders in place, I might add, a full disclosure of the documents. But that he did highly recommend that the CCRC look into the case. And so immediately upon receiving his instruction, we then started to work on the submissions as they are presented to the Criminal Case Review Commission now. Yes, I mean, one of the things that's emerged over the last couple of years of research uh, is quite significant malpractice on behalf of uh, two of the leading uh, officers involved in the second investigation, uh, the one that eventually led to Jeremy's conviction. Uh, the, the senior officer who was in charge of that second investigation, um, D.I. Ainsley, and um, his uh, colleague, uh, D.I. Cook, who was head of the forensic uh, part of the investigation. Uh, it appears that um, amongst the things they have done is to actually destroy some of the evidence that was key to the case. Uh, now, clearly, that is uh, malpractice of a, of a quite breathtaking scale. So we have put together a complaint uh, on that element and a number of other um, parts of their action during the investigation, which has gone to the um, police standards uh, board which uh, is the body that investigates previously serving officers, not current officers, but ones who've retired. Uh, and that investigation is uh, ongoing at the moment. However, we have included that, um, those complaints within our CCRC submissions. So they are part of the overall material that the CCRC has been given. And there's a lot more evidence that we'll be able to release until later date, we've all involving their actions, but at the moment, we've got to give the Criminal Case Review Commission time to analyse that themselves and decide what they want to do. So, you know, we strictly on follow legal guidance on what we can disclose and when. Why do two silences matter, though, Philip? I mean, a lot of people will say, like the Crown Prosecution Service um, QC at the yeah. Judicial Review, said it doesn't matter if there's 40 silences involved in the case, Sheila's blood was still in it. So, Yes, well, th th that was a classic comment from Miss um, Darlow, the, the Crown's uh, counsel on that, uh, at that hearing. Um, now, it does at first look appear that quibbling about whether there are one or two silences involved in the case might be, look as though we're trying to get Jeremy off on a technicality, but it in fact, it is far from that. Uh, the reasons why two silences matters are basically twofold. Uh, firstly, that we know that no silencer was involved in the case at all, and that these uh, silencers are, in fact, a complete red herring. However, because this was the evidence that was presented at court, we have to deal with it, despite the fact that we know it's actually not relevant. Now, what was presented at court was a very straightforward case that there were 
there was a single silencer uh, in which there was some blood, which was claimed to be Sheila Caffell's. Uh, and on the end of it, there was paint that supposedly came from a struggle between Jeremy and his father in the kitchen during the course of the tragedy. Now, in fact, what has emerged since we've had all this new material is that the blood that was found, which may or may not have been Sheila's, it could have been an, a, a range of other people's as well, was on one of the moderators and on a separate, different moderator was where the paint was found some considerable time after the incident uh, and after a number of forensic scientists had looked at that particular moderator and found no paint in the end of it at all. So what has emerged is the fact that these two separate pieces of forensic information, that the blood and the paint, which were on two separate moderators, were then conflated into the appearance of having come from one single device. Uh, and it was that deception that was at the centre of the Crown's case. Uh, and, and that is what we're now challenging with this, this new evidence. Um, now, we think they did this because they probably rightly thought that a jury wouldn't accept that two separate silencers had been used during the incident because they are very simple devices. And uh, when both of them were found after the tragedy, neither appeared to have any damage to them. So they were working perfectly all right. So for that reason, we believe that they conflated these two pieces of evidence from separate silencers, presented it at court as having come from one. Uh, and that is why this issue is so important. So what was my role in uncovering the evidence that have led to the latest submissions? I didn't immediately, when I came to be involved with Jeremy's case, I didn't immediately become involved with the campaign. Uh, I had just worked with Jeremy for two or three years in the first instance um, before being introduced to the campaign and becoming part of the campaign team. So prior to me coming to the campaign, Sarah Hanover, who is joint administrator on the campaign, used to do the work that I do now uh, to a very high standard very academic and she's very high standard of work. Uh, but obviously she's, she had her work and her job as well and, and you can't have time to do everything in a day. So first I started assisting Sarah and then over the course of uh, a year or so, I gradually took over helping Jeremy exclusively as well as the campaign work. So what was the process of putting the um, submissions together? So what we, Jeremy and I tend to do is we call it pulling a thread. So we'll find a particular issue. So let's, for instance, say um, the telephone that was supposedly found in magazines in the kitchen, hidden by Jeremy, said the prosecution, to prevent his parents using the phone upstairs. So we knew that wasn't right because Jeremy was like, well, that's not true because, you know, I had no involvement in it at all and I never hid a phone in the kitchen. So gradually we pull a thread so we see what everybody has to say about that. So every witness, the police went to reports, went to action reports, went to um, police statements and gradually started being able to put the case together so that we could then eventually prove that Mr. Ainsley involved again manipulated the evidence about that particular issue 
because we can now prove that no telephone was hidden on the day. We can prove it was hidden a lot later. It was still in, hidden in August, but a lot later. And it was hidden after the uh, incident had happened. So that's one particular thing. So we, we literally pull threads on everything until we get to the point where we think there's nothing else. We can then construct a document using all the quotes and referencing them using Jeremy's referencing system so that anybody can easily find where we've got that information from. So once we've done that on one issue, we then go to another issue and we've done that all the way through. We've been right back to the beginning of the case since actually the 6th of August, all the way through, through every day since up to 2002 appeal. So from that, we've then been able to extract even more. And even to this day, we're still finding evidence. In fact, we've, we've started files now because the submissions are in. We've had to start files now on new evidence since the submissions have gone in because it's, it's constant. It's constant. And, it, and you might think, well, why does it take so long? You know, you've had these things 11 years now. Well, 10 years. Why is, why is it taking you so long to find this information? But it's not the fact that you found the, um, anything that's like slam dunk. There it is in a single document. It's a case of. A sentence within a document means nothing. You think that's a little bit odd for him to say that. It doesn't mean anything. But as that um, analysis develops on that particular issue, six months, a year, two years, five years down the line, you can get, wait a minute, and so and so say this about that issue. And that was how we eventually got to the one-shot evidence because it was easily overlooked. When you have a police officer saying, I saw Sheila the shot, and I saw Sheila and I saw she had the shot under her chin. And it's like, when you're first reading it, and it's an abstract statement, and it's just on its own, you think, okay. But when you actually remember, it's remembering that's half the issue. So it's remembering, wait a minute, he said a shot, they said the shot. And that's a little bit odd of two people who seem to be inferring one. And then a year down the line, you might come across another statement that's the shot. So now we've got three. So that then causes you to look, well, wait a minute, what did everyone else say who saw Sheila in that initial first hour? And that's how we managed to pull that information together regarding that. So it is very involved. It's very comprehensive. It's very time-consuming. But we've done it absolutely meticulously to the best of our ability, because it's very easy to, you know, think that something's just a typo, to think that something's wrong, and we're like, well, that doesn't be quite right, but, you know, we leave it a lot of the time, we leave it. But then when we come back to it, it actually fits into further things that we've found. So, you know, it's quite involved. So what we do, we put all this into, when this, the, the defence team said, we need the submissions. What we did is put all the issues that we'd uncovered into sets. So it was everything related to silence, everything related to interference at the scene, for instance, everything related to the call logs that we've uncovered in the last 10 years in the specific individual documents that we've been creating. So put it all together, 
made sure the running order was right so that it made sense and it wasn't jumping about from A to Z to back to B again. And from that, we were able to then um, polish it into what we considered was a, a very substantial, very compelling um, submission, which was then sent to the legal team. So in the past, since the beginning of this year, the legal team has been working on those submissions that we sent them, going through them and making their own submission, which is even more focused than what ours were. But because such a lot of the evidence is of vital importance, that led to a lot of appendices. As each appendix is looked at by the Criminal Case Review Commission as another issue. And so because there were a lot that were related to the subject matter, but didn't quite fit into the main document, we've then made them as an additional appendix. So to quickly run through, um, do you want to quickly run through the grounds, Philip, what we've got? The new CCRC submissions comprise eight issues, each of which have multiple grounds within them. The first issue uh, concerns the silencers, which we discussed a few minutes ago. Uh, issue two relates to the telephone call logs that now prove uh, that Neville Bamber also made a call to the police as well as Jeremy, uh, and that that fact alone means that uh, Jeremy couldn't have committed the crimes uh, because it would have been logistically impossible for him to have gone between the two venues for those calls in the time required. This issue also contains multiple grounds, along with seven appendices, all of which constitute alibis for Jeremy uh, and raise brand new areas for the CCRC to consider. Uh, it also addresses non further non-disclosure issues uh, that would have impacted on the jury's deliberations had they known uh, of that material at the time. Issue three is regarding the integrity of the scene. Um, as um, one of the courts that reviewed the case over many years said, uh, changing a crime scene before it's properly recorded is a, is a cardinal sin. Um, we now have considerable evidence that that is exactly what Essex Police did in this case. Um, and that, that is a fact that they have always vehemently denied uh, right up to today. However, we set out evidence regarding the seizing of exhibits, which were subsequently undisclosed, uh, and damage caused by the police, office, police officers to the scene, uh, which they later claimed had been caused by Jeremy during the incident. We know that there were a considerable number of police officers who not only attended the scene, but entered the house prior to any official photo photographs being taken, uh, and that the number that the police claimed to have attended is but a fraction of those that actually did uh, make their presence felt at the scene on the day. Uh, so that issue uh, also deals with a number of non-disclosure matters uh, pertaining to officers who attended. Uh, and there are nine appendices to that particular issue. Issue four concerns the windows, uh, which was a key element of the trial. Uh, what the prosecution claimed were Jeremy's means of entering the house and leaving the house after he'd supposedly committed the uh, shootings. Uh, we have fresh evidence regarding the damage that was supposedly done 
during the incident with the windows. Uh, and we also set out hidden experiments that were conducted by the police, uh, which nobody knew anything about until very recently. Uh, there is one appendix to this particular ground, uh, which again looks at non-disclosure is issues that pertain to it. Issue five is focusing on fresh evidence uncovered, uncovered since the 2011 disclosure, which proves in a number of different ways that there were multiple signs of life in the house while Jeremy was standing outside. Uh, this activity continued until sh shortly after the rain team entered the house um, and includes matters such as the suicide note, uh, which had previously been reported in the media. There's one appendix to this issue uh, and features again non-disclosure uh, issues as well as matters pertaining to the single gunshot injury that was first observed on Sheila uh, and obviously raises the question of where the second wound that she suffered came from. Uh, this ground contains a number of new forensic reports uh, in addition to evidence that clearly shows that Sheila was in the kitchen and the police raid team entered the house. She suddenly ran upstairs where she sadly committed suicide. Uh, fresh evidence has also been attained from post-appeal uh, disclosure, uh, which sets out facts that the jury should have been aware of uh, regarding Sheila's medication, which would have undoubtedly affected her state of mind at the time of the tragedy. Uh, issue six covers uh, photographic issues. Uh, again, non-disclosure is a major part of this. Um, the Essex Police deceived both the Court of the Appeal and the CCRC in relation to a number of aspects of the photogra photographs they did disclose. Uh, and we know that there are a considerable number uh, that are still missing, still haven't been disclosed. Uh, this ground has 11 appendices, which covered all, covers all aspects of the uh, relevant and non-disclosed material. Issue seven is the, are the complaints against DSI Ainsley and DI Cook and others. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, there were a number of actions by these two officers uh, relating to disclosing exhibits, uh, including crime scene photos to unauthorized people, uh, about potentially destroying uh, some material which they admit they'd taken home, which is contrary to uh, all accepted procedure. And uh, also the, the way in which the initial evidence that on which uh, the decision to uh, try Jeremy was taken by the DPP uh, was presented by DSI Ainsley to the DPP in 1985 was deeply flawed. Uh, he was highly selective in the information that he gave to the DPP. There is one appendix to this issue, uh, which raises the subject of the commissioning of forensic reports by DSI Ainsley uh, in an attempt to influence the CCRC during some of their previous deliberations. Issue eight covers the inheritance issues and the actions of uh, Jeremy's uncle, Robert Boutflower, who clearly had a major incentive, financial incentive, in uh, lying during the proceedings and deliberately misleading the jury. Uh, he did this about both actions that he claimed Jeremy had uh, undertaken and things that he said to him, as well as about his own financial status. So we've quickly run through 
all the issues that are being presented to the CCRC. Now, they're actually in. It like, just feels so good to be able to say the submissions are in front of the CCRC. It's been a long time coming to be able to say that sentence, but we're absolutely elated. But of all those issues, we all have our favourites. So, Philip, would you like to tell everybody what your favourite issue is? Yes, well, this won't come as much of a surprise to you, but the second shot is uh, something that I think is, is very fundamental to the whole miscarriage of justice that we're looking at here, because it explains so many other different things that would appear at first uh, glance to be mysterious, such as how could Sheila have shot herself twice, um, both very serious wounds that would in due course have been fatal. Uh, and it's something that people often quote as a reason why they think that uh, Jerry might be guilty because they can't come up with any rational explanation as to how that might have happened. Yes, Yvonne, so what, what out of all these different uh, matters is your favourite issue? Man, it has to be the paint and the scratch marks. Uh, it was the very first thing I wrote to Jeremy about all those many moons ago. And it's still relevant today. In fact, the evidence we have on this now is just absolutely categorically proves what happened uh, regarding the contaminants, the paint contaminants, and regarding the scratch marks to the underside of the mantle and the fascia of the mantle. So I don't want to go into too much detail at this time, but that is my favourite issue. Um, Jeremy's favourite issue is, well, it's very hard to pick one, you know, we've struggled with these, but Jeremy's favourite issue, I must say, I think would be, I think it's got to be two, there's got to be the suicide note, um, which was admitted to and reported in the media last year, um, which was uh, admitted to by DS Jones in 2002 during the Stoke and Church inquiry that they discovered a note which said, I've just killed myself. Where that note is, nobody knows. Could be that maybe the SIAs took it home with him. We just have no way of knowing. Another favourite issue of Jeremy's is the uh, non-disclosure of some of the officers who were present at the scene and their actions. Uh, yet again, unfortunately, I can't go into detail at this time, but it is. It is significant that the actions of these undisclosed police officers have had on the case and the way that Essex police have tried to hide them and whitewash them from the case, but accidentally left documents in that refer to them. So when we go investigating, we were, we've been able to find out a little bit more about them than we were ever intended to know. Um, so that's been. That's another of Jeremy's favourite issues. So what will happen now? Now comes a time where we've all got to be patient. Uh, it's going to be an anxious few months while the CCRC review the material that they've been sent. It is substantial. They've been sent data files, um, computerised data files, so that they have access to the information because to send them this evidence through the post would be we'd need a van because each everything we've said is meticulously referenced and so for us to provide all that material the only logistical way to do that that made any sense was to provide them 
with the Holmesbox reference number, the document, the page, the, the, then the exact area of that document where they can find the quote that we've used in our evidence. So how long will it take for them to make their decisions? We simply do not know. Um, personally, I am very confident in the evidence that we have. Personally, I think it won't take them long. I think by page four of ground one, they will know that Jeremy is innocent and this case needs referring. However, others on the campaign team who don't mind me saying, uh, Sarah is a lot more sceptical. One area of concern for the campaign is possible political interference in the appeal process now underway. Jeremy's original 25-year tariff that was given to him by Justice Maurice Drake at the conclusion of his trial was later changed by the then Home Secretary, Douglas Hurd, to a whole life tariff in 1988. This was, by its very nature, a political decision rather than a judicial one. Jeremy was not even informed of this change until several years later. The current Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is the MP for Witham in Essex, the next door constituency to White House Farm. Mm. She, has, she has been vociferous over many years in supporting the relatives who were the beneficiaries of Jeremy's conviction and questioning whether Jeremy should have any access to the media to help him campaign against his wrongful conviction. In 2010, she called a debate in Parliament to whether people serving life sentences to be granted access to the media. Currently, this is Jeremy's right as a convicted man maintaining his innocence. Yeah, absolutely, Philip. She's been very vocal on behalf of the relatives. And a further consideration is that a number of the police officers whose conduct we have raised with the, in our complaints to the CCRC are her constituents. Given these facts, no close friendly relationship with Essex police, and the relatives, the campaign strongly feel that Mrs Patel should withdraw herself from any involvement with the case or any of the subsequent inquiries that may occur as and when Jeremy's conviction is quashed. Sarah is a lot more sceptical than us uh, also because of the fact that it took eight years last time for the CCRC to make considerations. And that was partly because over the, the commissioner's change. So the, uh, when a commission is in place, I think they serve five years and then they change. So if, if we were just in the process of someone was halfway through their term and then left, that means somebody would have had to start again reviewing that material. I'm not sure if that happened or not. But in any case, as, we've, as material was found then, it was submitted to the CCRC. So in effect, although it was new evidence that was found, which should have helped and assisted us, it actually caused them to take a lot longer to make their considerations. This time, I don't think it will take that long at all. I, I am convinced that there are factors within the submissions that warrant a speedy referral, that there is evidence within our submissions that absolutely categorically prove Jeremy is innocent. In, and if the CCRC agree with us, they can't fundamentally sit on those issues for years. 
I anticipate that some of the issues we have included will be deemed to be proof of germs in a sense that they will deem them suitable enough to be able to be fast-tracked to the Court of Appeal, which means that they will receive a court hearing a lot faster than the normal process. Because if you have evidence of innocence in front of you that categorically proves it, you can't keep him an innocent man in jail on the evidence. And I firmly believe that's the evidence we've provided to the CCRC. So we can't predict. We can only be hopeful. But we've all got to just be very patient. I know it's going to be anxious, particularly for Jeremy, because he's at the heart of this. And every day is going to seem like it's never ending at the moment while we wait for the decision. We don't expect anything at all within the next two to three months. Um, but then one, we're, we're hoping to be able to hear something maybe in a few weeks' time. But if we don't, then we don't, and we've got to give them the, the chance and the opportunity to do a thorough investigation on the evidence that we've put to them. So I can't see it dragging on too long. Then again, obviously, we've got to give the CCRC chance and I believe that at heart the CCRC are interested in justice. They have had some bad reports in the media. Um, they haven't always followed what we've thought would be the way forward even in Jeremy's case but like Philip said earlier they have referred Jeremy's case before on what I consider to be a lot weaker evidence than what we have now. Mm. So yeah, I, I absolutely believe that they will do the correct thing. One thing we should stress is that nowhere in any of these uh, issues is there any speculation. Everything we're saying is based in fact, taken from police documents and uh, statements that the police have taken. So that there, there are no flights of fancy or anything like that within these. It's all factual, comprehensive and robust. Uh, and we think any one of the eight uh, individual issues in and of itself would merit a referral. But taken together, we think that it's an overwhelming case uh, and we trust that the CCRC will see it in the same way. And as well as taking it as the individual issues that we've put forward that have the individual grounds within the issues, we've done it in such a manner that it creates a holistic um, mm -hmm. story. So it's telling the CCRC from the outset, it's explaining from the outset what happened, what the evidence shows happened. It talks them through each stage of what's happened to Jeremy and each piece of evidence. So it's been taken very much holistically. So particularly regarding uh, the scene, particularly regarding um, what the police said about the scene, because it's the majority of the evidence that relates to the scene and the items found within that scene, namely the silencer, that convicted Jeremy. I know that there was people who said things. We know that there's the evidence of Julie Mugford. We'll discuss Julie Mugford. Well, we'll discuss Julie Mugford in an episode of a podcast. But this isn't a personal attack. Our submissions are a personal attack on any of the people who were involved it's very much uh, focused on the evidence that proves Jeremy is innocent. We're not out to attack individuals. 
for what they said or, you know, if they felt any pressure or to, and they've said they've lied or anything like that. It's purely evidence-based. You know, it's not based on Jeremy saying he's innocent. It's based on the evidence. So they're very robust, they're very comprehensive. They're absolutely compelling. And I have absolute faith that in a very short period of time, we will be in the Court of Appeal and that the judges will, because it will be in front of three judges and that those judges will absolutely agree with everything put before them. And it could always be that the Crown Prosecution Service, when they see the evidence we've put forward, may not wish to con contest it. They might not have any argument against what we've put forward. And I firmly believe in some areas they can't have any evidence counter what we've we've said but we just have to wait and see they're not going to um exonerate jeremy unless he's absolutely categorically proven to be innocent and that's what we've done in these submissions we want to be patient we have to wait and thank you to everybody for all your support because you're absolutely amazing we need you just as much as jeremy needs you and you know, you're, you're all our rock and our backbone that drive us to justice. Jeremy, bye-bye.